Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be fellowshipping with you again. It's so wonderful to see so many of you again. And who knows when we'll see each other again, right? The way things are going with all sorts of things happening. What's happening is that my wife and I are actually, since we work with Adventist World Radio, I'm responsible for the training of evangelists and Bible workers, etc., so that we have both. We have the, the broadcast and we have the boots on the ground. So my responsibility is to have boots on the ground, and AWR does the broadcasting. And that way we can actually uh, see the results of what is going on. For example, I think all of you know, or maybe you don't know, that uh, AWR started beaming into the rebel area in the Philippines. How many of you are acquainted with that story? Any of you? Uh, a couple of you. And so what happened was that uh, it was one of, our, our, one of our students, a person that I trained, um, that the rebel showed up one day and took him a gunpoint into the jungle. He didn't know if he would ever see his family again. It turned out that what they wanted was Bible studies. And because they've been listening to the message of salvation through the AWR broadcasting, so he began to do Bible studies with them, and that began to spread among the rebels. And finally, it ended up that 700 rebels surrendered. And this war had been fought for 50 years. More than 40,000 people had died as a result of that war. And they couldn't stop it. The government did everything with bombs and bullets and whatever, and they couldn't stop it. So finally, the rebels decided that they wanted to accept the message of salvation, accept Christ as their Savior, and they in, gave their weapons in exchange for Bibles. And then uh, we met with them. Um, we had a baptismal service of the 700 rebels plus their families. With that day, we baptized over 3,000. So it was a long day of baptizing. That's the time when you develop your biceps. <laughs> and so we, we uh, uh, then um, heard the rebels say, we have determined that each one of us is going to win another one. So each one would win one. So we baptized them in February. By August, they already had 700 more rebels that surrendered and turned over their weapons. And uh, the president of the country was so excited that he actually met with some of us, uh, with Elder Wilson, etc. We were all in isolation in one of the hotels for a week. But anyway, so he met with, with the, uh, Elder Wilson and some of our uh, leaders of AWR and, and expressed his gratitude that the church, the Adventist church, had, was able through the preaching of the gospel over the waves to bring a change to that war. And so now the war is ended. And the beautiful thing is, on the day that we baptize the rebels, we baptize the general of the rebels and the general of the military at the same time. And the, the assassins for both sides I, I had prayer with them as they held hands together, and these two assassins were responsible to try to figure out how to kill each other. And uh, they would actually look for high-profile people and assassinate them. And so now we had the joy of seeing them holding hands together and praying. Isn't that wonderful? And so there's a lot of things that are going on, but it's not just the broadcasting, but it's actually the, foot, the boots on the ground having uh, people uh, witnessing, etc. So we're dealing with China, we're dealing with Thailand, we're dealing with Bangladesh and, Sing and uh, Sri Lanka and uh, Pakistan. So we are presently, I have been to uh, some of those countries to train the people. And what's wonderful is that, uh, like I did a training for uh, the seminarians at, at the Bangladesh seminary. And they had never held evangelistic meetings. So we trained them and taught them what to do, how to preach, how to make appeals and all that. And for the first time, and AWR sponsored them, we uh, provided for their meetings. 
And they went out and did two evangelistic meetings, and this is among Muslims. And 70 were baptized. When before they were having a tough time, you know, reaching the Muslims. So there's a lot that's going on, and we praise God for it. And there's a lot that needs to take place. So continue to pray for the AWR team as we are seeking to finish the work that God has given for us to do. Let's pray together as we study the Word. We do thank you, Father, for your Spirit promised to us. And even now we ask for that infilling that you have promised. We claim that promise in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are acquainted with uh, this verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law of the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to what? But to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall pass, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, most of the time when I ask questions about what this, uh, uh, this tittle and jot, what does it mean, most of the people say, well, it's like the dying of an eye or the crossing of a T. Have you heard of that explanation? Okay, so the jot and the tittle. So, did Jesus actually mean uh, what people say it, 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 it means? The dotting of the I or the crossing of a T? Well, obviously, the crossing of the T is a, 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 uh, an English thing, so Jesus could not be talking about that. And the dotting of an I is an English thing again. And so he could not be using English to explain something to the Hebrews. So he was actually speaking in either in Aramaic or this particular time to the Jews in Hebrew, because he was speaking to the rabbis. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So what, what did he mean by the one jot and the one and the tittle? You know, and I know, hopefully, that the Bible was written in what language? Hebrew. The writings of Moses were in Hebrew. And it's interesting that the Bible says that Abraham was in Hebrew. So if Abraham was in Hebrew, what language did Abraham speak besides Aramaic and other languages? He spoke what? Hebrew. Because Hebrews are called Hebrews because they speak Hebrew. So you have Abraham then that's a Hebrew, which means then that Abraham uh, was able to communicate with his great-grandfather Noah. So my hunch, this is a hunch, I don't have proof for it, but since Abraham was a Hebrew, my hunch is that the original language was Hebrew. Now, what's amazing about this is that Moses spent uh, at least 40 years being trained in Egypt. And since he was going to be the next pharaoh, he had to be trained in something called hieroglyphics. You're acquainted with that, right? So... Moses, however, did not write the Bible. God did not inspire him to write it in hieroglyphics. He inspired him to write it in Hebrew. And you can understand why. Here's hieroglyphics. Can you imagine how many walls you would need to write the Bible in hieroglyphics? And so, think of the wisdom of God. That God selected a language that Moses was not brought up with except um, a few years when his mother was taking care of him until he turned him over to the daughter of Pharaoh. But all his education, like myself, um, I went to New York when I was six years old, but all my education has been in English. So even though I spoke Spanglish, you know what that is, right? A mixture of Spanish and English, I didn't really speak Spanish. And so I imagine then that Moses being brought up with uh, hieroglyphics in that language, that he probably didn't speak very much Hebrew other than what God inspired him to write. So he wrote the Bible in Hebrew, not in hieroglyphics. Now, what's interesting about that is that 
1799, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte had gone to Egypt to take over Egypt. He had already kind of conquered most of, of Europe, and so he went down to Egypt. And while he was down in Egypt, one of his uh, leaders or soldiers stumbled into a stone in the sand, buried in the sand. He began to clean it up and unearthed it, and it was the, what today is called the Rosetta Stone. So that Rosetta Stone was actually discovered in 1799, but it had been buried in the ground for hundreds and hundreds of years. So here's what the uh, Rosetta Stone looks like. I think uh, some of you have been there. I know Don has, has seen it. Have you, Don? Okay. Anybody, anybody else has seen the Rosetta Stone? It's in the Museum in England, in London. And this stone then is written in three languages. How many languages? Three, three languages. You can see the division there. And so you have then these, these particular languages. And it turns out that, that the first one is hieroglyphics, then you have Greek, and they have Aramaic. And what's interesting about this is that nobody really knew what this stone was about until 1822. In 1822, a French uh, man deciphered the hieroglyphics by using the stone. And it turned out then that this, was, this stone was used so that anybody who wanted to, do, to deal with the Egyptians could actually read the stone and figure out how you say certain things in their language and do business with the Egyptians, all right? So if you spoke Aramaic or you spoke Greek or hieroglyphic, then you could actually decipher what the, how to do business with Egypt. So this was the stone that the uh, merchants used to interpret and communicate with the Egyptians. You understand? But nobody knew that. So the stone was brought over to uh, France, and then the France sold it to England, and England put it in the museum, and it was not until 1822 when they deciphered the hieroglyphics, which means then that if God had written the Bible in hieroglyphics, it would have been hidden for at least how many years? You say 1822 would be what? 1800 years at least, right? And then, since it was written, it was actually put together about 196, so you're talking about over 2,000 years that that stone was not known from the time of the buried. So, thank God for his wisdom. What do you say? You wrote it in Hebrew. So, the Rosetta Stone then opened up the meaning of the hieroglyphics. That means then that the Bible had been written in that language, it would have been locked up. So in order for us to understand what Jesus was saying, then we have to go to Hebrew. And uh, the Hebrew is it's a very simple language, uh, and it's there that you find the word jot. Notice it's J-O-D, not jot, J-O-T. So Jesus said not one jot, one tittle. So what is the jot and the tittle in Hebrew? We find the meaning in Psalms 119. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 119. Psalms 119. Because in your Bible, you'll see some things that will be interesting to you. This psalm is entirely about the law. It is the, the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is all about the law of God. However, it uses synonyms to explain the law. In other words, uh, sometimes writers don't like to be redundant. In other words, be repetitive using the same word. So they use other words that, that are similar in meaning. And so the one who was inspired to write Psalms 119 uh, had to have enough understanding or inspiration to put this uh, psalms together. Now, this particular psalms has 176 verses. So it's um, long psalms. And it's divided into 22 sections. So you have 176 verses divided by 22 equals how much? Mathematicians, anybody here? If you take 22 into 176 verses, 
you get eight. How many? Eight. So, here they are. If you look at your Bible then, looking at it right now, you'll find different synonyms for the law. For example, verse 1 uses what? The word law. Can you see that? Are you there in Psalms 119? Okay, notice what it says. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Okay. The second verse uses the word testimonies. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. That's why when you go to the book of Revelation, and it says to the word and to the testimony, right? Yes, the testimony is another word for the law, as well as it's another word for the book of the law. All right? So sometimes when Jesus said Moses, he was talking about the five books of Moses. In English, we say Genesis and Exodus, but in other languages like uh, German, for example, or Croatian, they say Moses 1, Moses 2, Moses 3, Moses 4, Moses 5. Are you acquainted with that? Anybody speak German here? Nobody, nobody speaks Deutsch. Okay. All right. So you, you have then, the, the verse 3 is ways. You see that? They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Then the next one is precepts. Notice verse 4. Uh, Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Then you go to the next one. The statutes, commandments, righteous judgments, and statutes again. So eight verses speaking about the law, but using different synonyms to explain the law. You see that? And so then it goes to the next eight verses, and it does the same thing. In verse uh, 9. Wherewith all shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. So now thy word is another word for the law. Okay. Then uh, verse 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee, or let me not wander from thy commandments. So now you have commandments. Uh, then verse 11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Right. So thy law have I hid in my heart. Then verse 12, blessed are the, thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. And with my lips have I declared all the judgments. And verse 14, rejoice in the way of thy testimonies. Verse 15, I will meditate in thy precepts. Verse 16, I will delight myself in thy statutes. So you see the re re repetition of those words. You see that? And it follows through the entire chapter, 176 verses. Now, I don't know about you, but... Uh, I like poetry. Any of you like poetry? Any of you write poetry? Uh, think about the difficulty of writing poetry for 176 verses with this idea. Each verse begins with the Hebrew letter under its designation. In other words, 119 is divided by, by uh, 8 right, verses. Multiply by 22, you get 176. So each eight verses in Hebrew have to start with one of the Hebrew letters. So if you have your Bible, do you have on the top of your, your verse 9, verse 1, the word Aleph? Do you see that? How many of you have that? Do you have the Hebrew over it? Sometimes they have the Hebrew or just the English rendition, Aleph. The next one, uh, verse 9, you have Beth. You see that? Then verse 17, you have the Gimel. Then Dalek, verse uh, 25. Then you have He and uh, Vau and Zane and Cheth. Uh, and then Cheth. And then Jod. There's the Jod. Where is the Jod? Over verse 373. So each is written that way. Now, I, I, just to show you the actual Hebrew, here's the actual Hebrew. But Hebrew is read this way. From left to, from right to left. Usually we read from left to right, correct? But I want you to notice here's the Hebrew. You see the same letter? That's Aleph. The next one is Beth. Okay? So every, every eight verses must begin with the letter on this designation. So think of writing eight verses in starting with the letter A. 
And then eight verses starting with the letter B. And each eight of those verses have to start with B. Okay? Then the next one, Gimel. The next one, Dalek. So all of these eight verses have to start with that particular letter under its designation. You see that? Can you understand the complexity and the difficulty of doing that? Yes? All right. So here's what's important about this. The jot, if you notice the jot, it is, it is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So here's the jot. Can you see it? Okay. It looks like an apostrophe. Can you see that? All right. So the jot then is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And when Jesus was saying, not the jot or the tittle, you have to then say, okay, we know what a jot now is. It is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, like an apostrophe, right? And then the tittle is simply a little tail in one of the letters to differentiate between the beth and the kath. The kath doesn't have the little, little tittle or the little tail. And this one does. Can you see that? So when writing it, they have to do that in order to say, okay, this is a beth. And if they don't do that, then this is a kath. Okay? You understand? So now we know what a jot is and what a tittle is. So the, the importance of what Jesus is saying is highlighted then when you understand that Jesus is, is referring to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet and why did he pick that one and not, as in the book of Revelation, it says, I am Alpha and Omega. In the, in the Greek, alpha, alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. But when it's speaking about the law, it doesn't say it's the Alpha and Omega. It says not one jot, not one tittle. Why does he say that? Well, let's look at it. When you go to the Ten Commandments with the law of God, since this is speaking about the law of God, then when you go to the Ten Commandments, you find the jot right here. Here's the jot. Okay? And it so happens that this, this is the, the four consonants of the name of God. And the four consonants of the name of God begin with what letter? With jot. So, Jesus is not saying not one jot, but one jot. Why does he pick that letter? Because what he's saying is, if you remove the jot, you're removing who from the law? God. Who are you removing? God. And if you remove, you remove God from the law, then you have a godless law. We need God. Because even though we have his law, his law cannot change us. His law simply re reveals what we are in reference to his standard of righteousness. But the law cannot change you. It is God that can change you. And that's why in the book of Romans, chapter, four, uh, chapter 10, verse 4, which a lot of Christians misinterpret, it reads like this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. And so, if you take what most Protestants are teaching about that verse, you would say then that Christ ended the law. And that's the way they use it. Christ is the end of the law. So the law is done, finished, kaput. Okay? The problem with that translation is that it's erroneous because Paul uses the word end indifferently. If you actually read verse six, chapter 6 of the book of Romans, you'll see that he uses the word end as the outcome or the goal. The what? The outcome. In other words, the goal of the law is Christ. The law leads you to Christ. How does the law lead you to Christ? 
Because when you compare yourself with the law and you see your imperfection and your weakness and your sin, it drives you to have to find healing. But who can heal you? Christ. Okay. Do you understand? So Christ is the end of the law, or the law leads you to Christ. So it doesn't mean finish. It means pointing to the outcome. In the book of James, it says uh, that seeing the end of the Lord. Seeing the what? The end of the Lord. If you believe that the word end means to finish, then who's finished? The Lord. The other one that says, in Peter, it says, seeing the end of your faith. Does that mean that the faith ends? Or does that mean that the, your faith leads you to salvation? Okay. So when you think of uh, what's happening then, the Lord was concerned that you not remove him from the law. Now I need to ask you a question then. Now that you know that the jot is the letter that begins the name of God and points to God. This is the actual first commandment. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other God before me. All right? So, since that's the case then, and we recognize that the Lord is speaking about not taking God out of it, and you understand then that without God, you're lost because the law points you to how crooked you are, and only through Christ he can straighten us out, right? All right, so to remove the job then is to remove Jehovah. So now that I need to ask you the question, who wrote the law or who is Jehovah? Well, who gave the Ten Commandments? Do you know? Who? I hear all sorts of responses. God gave the law. How many agree with that? How many of you disagree with that? How many of you are not raising your hand? <laughs> okay. The reality is that most people think it's God the Father. Uh, most Protestants teach that in the Old Testament it's God the Father and the New Testament it's God the Son. But that's incorrect. It is not supported by the Scriptures. The Scriptures supports then that the one who wrote the Ten Commandments is none other than Jesus. Let me show you. And God said unto Moses, this is Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am that I am, and he said, Thus shall I say unto the children of Israel, I am have sent me. Okay? So he was to use the, the, the term I am, which means then I'm, I, I, I wasn't or I shall be. He is the ever-present that I am. All right. So when Jesus was on this earth, and he was talking to the Jews. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is claiming himself to be the, the I am. If Jesus is the I am, then he's the I am of the Old Testament. Correct? So Jesus then said, If you what? If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. All right, now, was Jesus quoting or was he just making a statement? Hmm? Well, let me, let me explain what, what, what I'm asking. I know he meant it, but what I'm asking is this. Did he quote from the Bible, or was he just making a statement? That's what I'm asking. And if he quoted from the Bible, where in the Bible did he quote from? So you're waiting for me to give you the answer. Okay. Here's the second commandment. Which commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do you see that? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, thou shalt not, uh, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself to them, nor serve them. For I am the Lord thy God, and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father unto the Father third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing 
What? Mercy unto how many? Thousands of them that what? Love me and do what? Aha. Uh -huh. So where's Jesus quoting from? From the second commandment. So Jesus is quoting from the second commandment, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So Jesus is claiming himself to be the I am, and he's claiming himself to be the actual writer of the Ten Commandments. Is that surprising? Because a lot of people think that it's the Father that wrote the Ten Commandments, but it's not the Father, it's the Son. Jesus is the Creator, is that true? And if He is also the Redeemer, is that true? He is the, the uh, Savior, He is the one who's coming back. In other words, Jesus is all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. You just have to uh, read carefully to decipher that, all right? Notice what it, it says about this angel that appeared to Moses. And the angel of the Lord, the what? Angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burnt with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So how many are there in the bush? How many? I see one finger being lifted up in the back. Okay, yeah. It's, just, it's, it's using three titles for one person. The angel of the Lord appeared. Then it says, the Lord, and then it says God. So the Lord was in the bush, but he is referred to by three titles. And the reason for that is that the Lord Jesus actually has more than 40 titles. More than what? 40 titles. All right? Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, Moreover, brethren, not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all, did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the, that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Christ. So Christ was the one who created the earth. He's the one that uh, appeared to Moses. He's the one that, that led Noah. He's the one that appeared to Abraham. In other words, Christ appears over and over and over again. But many times, it doesn't use the name God. Sometimes it uses the angel of the Lord. The one? The angel of the Lord. Now... When Stephen was talking to the Jews in his day, before he was stoned, he quoted from the Old Testament and the experience that, that uh, Moses had with the angel. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the, what? By the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush. So the angel appeared, and by that angel, he, Moses was to be led. Then it says, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the, where? In Mount Sinai. So the angel spoke to Moses in Mount, what? Sinai. And uh, this angel then gave our fathers the lively oracles. So who is it then that wrote the Ten Commandments? It is the angel. Who is that angel? It is Jesus. And Jesus then appeared to Moses. He's the one that led Israel out of Egypt. He's the one that guided them with a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire in the nighttime. And for 40 years, he fed them with manna until he finally brought them to the land which today is called Israel. Now, the wonderful thing about all this is this.
If you notice in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is saying, you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their persecutors now threw it into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou ledeth them in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. And he continues, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spake with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments and made it known unto them by thy holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, thy servant. Now, in the book of Judges, something appears in reference to this angel, and that is what this angel claims to be. And the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up. What's he saying? The angel said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not done, not obey my voice. Why have you done this? So this is the angel that's making a, a, a statement of divinity. In other words, he's claiming to be the one to have led the people out of Egypt. He claims to be the one that gave them the holy oracles. So the reality is that Jesus oftentimes appears as an angel, when in reality it is the Lord himself. That's why people have a hard time finding Jesus in the Old Testament, because they don't find the name Jesus. They, they're looking for Jesus, they don't find it. That doesn't mean he's not there, it just simply means that he is addressed by different titles in the Old Testament, okay? So Jesus then is the center of the, of the law. If you take the jot out of the law, who are you taking out? You're separating the law from Jesus. And that's precisely what's taking place today. Most Christian churches have been teaching for years and years and years that the law is done away with and that Jesus has nothing to do with the Old Testament law, which is an error and it's misleading because Jesus himself makes sure that if you separate Jesus from the law, you are then in deception. And so most people today who believe that are following a deception. And a deception is dangerous. So God has guaranteed for us guidance, structure, order, because through that, we find safety, comfort, and hope. Without those things, we find uh, chaos and hopelessness. So what gives us a level of comfort is that which is stable. I think you will agree with me then that, that when things are not stable, it causes us to have a sense of discomfort. Is that true? Is that correct? So the Lord has given us law. And I've always asked this question, if all the Battle Creek citizens kept the Ten Commandments, what kind of city would you have? Hmm? You would have a wonderful city. Would you say amen? And so God has given us this wonderful law, and the one who gave us the wonderful law is actually Jesus Christ. Who is it? Jesus Christ. And the reason he gave us the law is for our salvation. In other words, through the law, we find out what is acceptable and pleasing to God and what is not. And it helps us to get direction. I'm so thankful. I grew up in a lawless situation in New York City. I was a gang member, and we were lawless. And the only time that, unlike Jews, was when Sabbath came around. We didn't know what Sabbath was. We just knew there was a day when the Jews didn't do anything. And because they couldn't do anything, they would hire us kids to turn on their lights or their stoves because they were not permitted, but they would give us a quarter or a nickel, depending on inflation, 
And then we would go in, in there and turn on their stoves or turn on their lights, and then they would cook something. But if we didn't, then they couldn't cook anything and they couldn't turn on the lights. But that's the only time that we, we were glad for the Jews because we loved candy and the quarter and nickel could buy. I don't know how many of you remember the big Snickers bars, Snicker bars. Any of you remember that? And so you can buy Tootsie Rolls, you can buy uh, M&M packets, and you know, we, we delighted in buying all this candy. We had all sorts of rotten teeth, but nonetheless, we enjoyed the candy. So we did not understand anything about this thing called the Ten Commandments. And unfortunately, we did a lot of stuff that was against God's commandments. But when we found conversion, when the Lord brought the light of his gospel to us, it changed our whole attitude. It made us lawful citizen rather than lawless citizen. So, there was a little uh, one-room school in West Virginia. My wife and I would just spend a few weeks in West Virginia in the opiate capital of the United States. We went there to do some missionary work. Well, there was a school in West Virginia that they had all sorts of grades, you know, and they couldn't keep a teacher. The kids would chase the teacher out of town constantly. So they finally shut down the school, and the parents were upset because they wanted their kids in school, but no one would take the job because of the, the way that the kids behaved themselves. So what they did was something smart. They decided to put an ad in New York City hoping that they can get a city slicker to come down. And so there happened to be a young man who was looking forward to some challenge, and when he read the ad, he called up and asked if the job was still available. They told him yes. And so he then interviewed, and they told him in the interview, you know, honestly, this is a tough school, and most teachers don't last more than three months, uh, so are you really interested? Yeah, yeah, I'm interested. So he took the challenge. And the opening day, he rang the bell, and the kids came to school, and there was, you know, 18-year-olds and 6-year-olds, etc. And so he began to write something on the board, and as soon as he did, he got uh, hit with all sorts of uh, projectiles. And when he turned around, everybody was sitting, around, sitting there with their hands <laughs> as angels. And he right immediately understood that he had to do something to change these kids' attitude but he was going to try to get them to cooperate with him. So he said, look, guys, I've come here, and I don't know how long I'm going to be, and, uh, but if I'm going to teach you something, I need your help. Well, how can we help you? So uh, tell me, what is the biggest problem you have in school? Well, Tom, the big kid, raised his hand and said, lunch stealing. So you have a problem with lunch stealing? Yeah, we have a problem with lunch stealing. And how do you feel about it? We hate it. So why don't you suggest some rules that we can put together to stop some of this? So they thought it was a great idea. They began to raise hands and suggest different rules. And finally, they stopped at 10 rules. And one of the rules was uh, no lunch stealing. But now you have the rules, you have to have punishment for lawbreakers, right? So. And they said, okay, now suppose somebody steals a lunch. Well, then what do we do? One kid raised up his hand and said, hang him from the nearest tree. <laughs> well, that was too severe. So they uh, began to discuss, and they finally came down to the uh, agreement that they would, anybody who got caught stealing a lunch, they would have to come up in the front of the class, they would have to take off their coat, and then the teacher with the rod give them eight strikes in the back. So they all agreed. The next day, school began, and things went very smoothly. Next day, everything went fine. It went fine for, for several weeks until one day, it was lunchtime, and Tom came inside, and he was mad. He was the 18-year-old kid. And the teacher said, what's the matter, Tom? Somebody stole my lunch, and when I get my hands on him, I'm going to kill him. Well, the teacher said, now, wait a minute, Tom. Remember, we got some rules, and... Uh, and there are consequences for breaking the rules, right? Yeah, get a hold of that guy, whoever it is. So, so the teacher said, okay. 
Give me some time. So he began to investigate and discover who it was. Unfortunately, it was a seven-year-old kid. His name was Tim. And Tim was brought up to the front. And the teacher said, Tim, did you take the lunch? Yes, I'm with his head bowed down. He had his coat on, and the coat was uh, up to his neck with the collar up. And the teacher said, uh, well, Tim, you know what the consequences are, right? You, you stole the lunch. Yes, sir. All right, take off your coat. And he said, can't. And the teacher said, you need to take off your coat, Tim. Uh, cannot. So the teacher was uh, getting a little frustrated and finally said, Tim, I order you to take off that coat. So Tim took it off, and he had nothing underneath. Didn't have a shirt on, no T-shirt. But all he had was skin and bones. When the teacher saw how skinny the kid was, he thought, if I hit this kid with this rod, he's not going to make it. But if I let him go, we're going to have the same mess again. So wondering what to do, he decided he had to go through with it. So he picked up the rod, turned the kid around, and was ready to hit him. And Tom jumped up and said, wait a minute, teacher. And the teacher stopped. What's the matter, Tom? And he said, teacher, if you hit that kid with that rod, he ain't going to make it. If it's okay with you, I'll be willing to come up and take his place. And the teacher said, you're not the one who stole the lunch. I know that, teacher. But I can't take it. If you hit that kid, he ain't going to make it. And I, I, I just can't handle that. So he looked around the class, and the kids were crying. So then he asked the, the students. And they agreed. They allowed Tom to come and take the place of Tim. So Tom came up. And immediately he took off his coat, put his body around little Tim's body, and said, go here, teacher. And the teacher began to whack him with the stick. And when he finished, Tom was in pain. He put his coat back and started walking down the aisle. And little Tim yelled out, hey, Tom! And Tom stopped and turned around. And little Tim just ran up, jumped up, and grabbed him by the neck and said, I'll love you forever for taking my place. So you see, what happened was that the kid, when he was asked, why did you do it? He said, my daddy died. My mama can't afford anything. I only have one shirt, and she just washed it today, so I, I came the way I am. And that made it even worse on the teacher. When he realized that the kid stole the lunch because the kid was hungry. He hadn't eaten for several days. But he realized then that he had to do something. And fortunately, Tom was willing to come and take his place. That's what happened with Jesus. He doesn't do away with his law. He'd rather take the punishment for you. What do you say? Yes, he wrote the law. He is the lawgiver. He is our creator. He is in the center of the entire Bible. He is the redeemer. He is the mediator. And he is the one that's coming back with all the angelic hosts to take you home. And it looks like it's going to take place soon. The way things are going... Society is falling apart. The world is falling apart. The scientists won't admit they just simply call it global warming. Global warming with 60 minus 60 degrees in the Midwest. They haven't had temperatures like that for many, many years. Global warming? No. Maybe it should be global warning right? Things are happening. The Lord is coming. But he's coming to take his children home. 
I don't know about you. I'm thankful that God gives my wife and I the opportunity to do what we can to advance the message of hope to the world. But the time comes when you get tired and weary uh, of traveling, and you hope that somehow a good master will arrive. There are too many people suffering, too many people who are displaced, there are too many people who are hungry, too many people who are dying, too many people who are committing all sorts of crimes. <sighs> Jesus must come, what do you say? Jesus must come. And I want to be ready for that day. Now you understand that without God, there's no law. But with God, there's the law. But the law is the law of love. That's why he said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. I wonder if you're willing to recommit your life to God tonight, to the one who created you, to the one who wrote the commandments, to the one who came and walked on the earth, and to the one who's mediating for you right now, and to the one who's coming to take you home. Would you like to just raise your hand and say, Lord, I want to recommit myself to you tonight. I want to love you. I want to serve you. And I want you to write those commandments where? In my heart. So that I love your ways. That's why I said in the Bible, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Praise God for his law. What do you say? Praise God for Jesus and the fact that we have a hope in him. And by the way, the word hope, I was doing a funeral and I was impressed with it as an acronym. Heaven, S-H, right? Offers, that's O, right? People, that's P. E, eternity. Heaven offers people eternity. What do you say? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the Sabbath, the time of fellowship with you and with each other, for the blessings that have been ours today and through our lives, for the hope that we have, for we recognize that we're living in a world that's shaking up or shaking down. Things are coming apart, society, families, all things are different, things are changing. And yet there's one that never changes, and we thank you for your constancy, for your faithfulness, and that you're always there. You change not, as thou hast declared. You see in our hands, help us, Lord, to long for a day when you will return. But at the same time, help us to reach others, that others may find the hope that we have. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.